When you get home today, if you would, check out uh, West Laurel's Facebook page. There's a little video on there uh, that, talks, that, that illustrates what we're going to be talking about today. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And the little video on our Facebook page has a couple of hedgehogs, and they're swimming. And one of the hedgehogs is just, he's just doing a Michael Phelps. I mean, he's just swimming along straight as can be. The other one's flipping over and crashing into the wall and then crashing into the other <laughs> little uh, critter in there. And just, you know, he's not doing too good. And it has Paul as the little Michael Phelps guy just swimming along. And it has me as the guy flopping around and not knowing which way to go. If you can relate to that, we're going to talk today about how to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. Paul was one who studied, and I sometimes think we don't always realize the, the amount of preparation that Paul went through before God used him in the mighty ways that he did. So today, we're going to look at that. We may get the idea that Paul didn't have to work for what he taught because the Holy Spirit moved him to write scripture and to teach truth. Now, I would wholeheartedly agree that what Paul wrote was spirit-inspired scripture. But I would not agree that that excused Paul from studying, and I think we'll see that today. Instead, I believe God used Paul's studies, his history, his personality, his vocabulary, and his extraordinary mind to communicate God's truth. The biblical writers were writing divinely inspired truth but they all have their own writing styles and peculiarities. For instance, Paul and John do not write the same way. Paul lays out his case in a wonderfully logical and orderly fashion that my Western mind appreciates very much. If you recall, when we studied 1 John, John will talk about a subject, and then he'll move on to the next subject, and then the next subject, and then a couple of chapters later, he'll get back around to that first subject and he'll add some to it. And he worked in a, in a kind of circular way where he would say something and then he'd get, it, he'd get the rest of it on his next pass. And then he'd elaborate some more on his next pass of that subject. And so these different writers would write in different styles based on their history and their thinking and that kind of thing. That more Eastern mindset is a little more difficult for me to follow because it was not how I was trained to think. Now, both were inspired by God, but the personality and cultural mindset of each man shows up in his writings. Obviously, Paul was Jewish, uh, but he was also a Roman citizen with an extensive education. So he just thought a little bit differently and would lay out his, his argument in an organized way that, again, appeals to me and probably most of us. All that to say that the biblical writers didn't just function like scribes for the Holy Spirit. In other words, the Holy Spirit didn't just tell them, hey, write down Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. No, and Paul would say, okay, I'll write that down. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. No, he was, he was inspiring Paul to write, but Paul was using, again, his own thoughts vocabulary, and those kind of things. He used these men, their educations, their culture, their intellects, and their vocabularies to record what we have in Scripture. I read a wonderful quote the other day that said, if you think you are called to preach, but you're not called to study, then really you just want to perform. 
So studying is involved in proclaiming and even sharing the word of God. We're going to see in the following verses that the Apostle Paul had three years of training with the Savior for ministry, just like the other apostles did. Well, maybe not just like the other apostles did, because they had their training before the death and burial and resurrection, and Paul had his training after the death, burial, and resurrection. Galatians 1, 11 through 18, I want you to look at this with me. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, look at this, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's Peter, and remained with him 15 days. I think people get the idea that Paul did not have to work for and train for his great theology and wisdom and insight, but that it was just gifted to him by the Holy Spirit. I would argue rather that the Spirit guided his study and then used that effort and study to accomplish great things for the kingdom through that apostle. Paul was one who studied and admonished others to study. And we should imitate him in that. Pray with me. Lord, we want to look, uh, we want to imitate Jesus Christ, Father. That is ultimately what we want to do. We want to be more and more like your precious, holy, perfect, righteous son. Lord, in between where I am and where Christ is, is Paul. And so, Lord, I want to imitate Paul as he imitates Christ. And Father, when, I, when we were preaching through 1 Corinthians and I came upon this verse, I thought, well, that's going to take a while to talk about. And then the more I thought about it, I said, that's going to take a long while to talk about it. So, Lord, we're going to take the next four weeks to talk about how to imitate Paul in some different areas. Lord, today we're going to look at studying. And I pray, I pray, Lord, that you would convince us that it's worth the time. Because really, Lord, that's, that's our question. Is it worth our time to study your word? Lord, it sounds insulting when I say it, but Father, I know that is the question. So Lord, would you, through your spirit, persuade us that it is indeed worth our time and our effort to study your word? I pray in Christ's name, amen. All right, our first point is study to determine what is the true And what are counterfeit gospels? We need to be so familiar with the truth that we can that we're easily able to spot when we see or hear a counterfeit. Now, guys, when I don't know if this is true anymore, but I read that used to they would train bank tellers 
to spot counterfeits. And the way they would do it is they would show them the real thing and make them so familiar with the real thing that they could see a counterfeit when they came across it. Now, you don't have to study counterfeits to see a counterfeit. You have to study the real thing in order to know it so well that you can spot a counterfeit. This takes some work, but it is work that any true follower of Christ should be eager to do. If God took the effort to write this book, preserve it supernaturally against all odds, translate it for you, and give you access to it, don't you think you ought to take the time to read it, reread it, and study it? Galatians 1.6 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If you've been around me long, you know that I like to talk about these counterfeit gospels fairly often, not to promote them, but to warn you away from them. If my kids were going to go in, go in the woods and go camping, and I knew that there was a particular kind of snake that was out in those woods and that it was deadly, all right, I would tell them all about that snake. I'd say, you need to watch for this. You need to be careful for this. You need to look out for it. Here's where it lives. Here's where it likes to stay during the day. Uh, stay away from those areas and be watchful of this thing because it will kill you. The false gospels, that's why I talk about them and warn you about them, is because they'll do worse than kill you. They will deceive you and lead you to hell if you're not careful. I won't dwell on them too much here, but let me say that the two that I run into most often are works, salvation, and what I'll call cheap grace. And guys, I don't mean I run into these Uh, When I'm talking to somebody from California, I don't mean that I run into these when I uh, visit some other place. I'm talking about I run into these when I tell the gospel to church members of West Laurel Baptist Church. It's right here and we need to see it, recognize it and stay away from it. Work salvation teaches that if you behave well enough... You can please God and inherit eternal life. It goes kind of like this. God's good. You're bad. Try harder. I'll see you next week. I think that's what some of us grew up hearing in church. That is not, is not the gospel. The problem with that is the Bible says in Romans 11, 5 and 6, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. All right, Paul says you can either be saved by grace or maybe it's works. But if it's works, it's no more grace. And so you got to pick one of the two methods. One leads to eternal life. One leads to eternal damnation. So he says, look, it's either grace or it's works. It's not some combination 
of the two. There are tons of other scriptures that we could look at, but for the sake of time, I'll leave it at that one for now. Now, to explain cheap grace, this one is a little more, a little more subtle, maybe even a little more deceptive. So I'm going to read you a quote from, from the German, uh, gosh, what all is he? He was a pastor. He was a, uh, a spy. Uh, he was a martyr. His name is Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Listen to this explanation of cheap grace. He says, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Does that sound familiar? Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. On the other hand, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will pluck out his eye, which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ, at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. That is genuine grace. My friends, you need to study and know which of these ways leads to eternal life, because there are lots of preachers who will preach a false gospel, and you must be able to tell the difference and the way you tell the difference is you study the authentic the next reason we need to study is we need to study to get and keep your mind right romans 12 2 is one of my favorite verses it says do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of god what is good and acceptable and perfect So how do you find what is good and acceptable and perfect and the will of God? Through studying God's word. The world will infiltrate your thinking unless you're tucked away in a monastery somewhere. And if you are tucked away in a monastery somewhere, you've still got to deal with the flesh and the devil. Okay, So that's not the solution. Right thinking leads to right living. Do you want to be able to discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect? If you love him, you do want to know how to live a life that is pleasing to him. So you're going to have to renew your mind through studying the word of God. So how do you do that? All right, let me, y'all zone in here. How do you do that? How do you get the word of God into your mind? First, you read it. Then you study it. You meditate on it. You listen to it. You memorize it. Now you may say, hey, I can't do all those things. Well, do one of those things. Do one of those things and get it into your head. You know, people uh, learn in different ways. I, being a musician, it probably has something to do with it. I am an aural, like A-U-R-L. I'm an aural learner because things coming into my ears stick in my brain better than through my eyes so what i'll do is when i'm reading scripture not not studying something but when i'm just reading through it i will have my phone read to me the scripture and i will look at it while i'm going so i don't get distracted now i'll just turn it on and play facebook or something you know play with facebook because then i won't be actually listening but i'll turn it on i'll listen to it and i'll read it and that is the best way for it to get into my head 
So you find what works for you and, and do it. Do one of these things every day. And let me encourage you not to delude yourself into thinking that you don't have time. Time is never the problem because we all get the same exact amount, right? Priority is the issue. And we all know that. We all know that. Guys, if, if you're thinking, I don't have time to study the scripture or read the scripture or memorize the scripture or listen to the scripture, let's just be honest for a second. You know it's because it's not a priority for you. So make it a priority. Let me give you another reason to study. Study so that you'll be equipped for service. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, check this out, equipped for every good work. God does not save us based on our good works, but he does save us unto good works. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Why? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, good works are not to be separated from our faith. And I think that sometimes we sort of do separate them. We mean well, but we don't want people to get confused by thinking that they can do enough good works to get them into heaven. And that's true, you can't. But good works are a part of the Christian faith because once God saves you, He saves you for good works. It's true that we're not saved by our works, but it's also true that we are saved for good works. That distinction is a matter of spiritual life or death. Does it matter which end of the shotgun you point the right way? Yeah, it matters very, very much. Getting the role of works or service in the Christian life right matters very much also. It's not that we're to, we're to abandon the way we're supposed to live and the, the way we're supposed to serve God. We just need to realize we're serving from salvation, not for salvation. So let me ask you a very practical question. If we're saved by grace and not works, then why should we worry about being equipped for service? And why should we do service, right? I just said that we don't do service to get saved, right? And so why do we even worry about doing service? I made a list of a few things, but they can all be categorized under this one thing. And that is bringing glory to God is why we who are saved do service for the kingdom of God. Whether our service is done to thank God for our salvation to join God in his work of reconciling people to himself, to worship God and bring others to worship him as well. Whatever your motivation to do service, it should ultimately be to glorify God. Listen to what scripture says about this in Matthew five fourteen through 16. It says, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, look here, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think some people are confused about this because a few verses later in Matthew 6, 1, 
Jesus says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. So first he says, practice your righteousness before other people. And then a few verses later he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. The confusion is cleared up immediately, though, if we continue the rest of that verse. Because uh, Matthew 6, 1 says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he doesn't say don't do service. Don't do good works. And if you do good works, hide it. That's not what he says. He says do good works that men may see and glorify your Father in heaven. Not to glorify you on earth. Motivation matters a whole lot. So to summarize, Jesus teaches us that we are to do works of service or good works, that are seen by men to glorify God. If our intention is to have people see our works so that they glorify us, then we've missed the mark completely. But you see the point here is that God gets the glory and not you. We need to study in order to be equipped for service that will glorify God and advance his kingdom. So, When you have a believer who says, okay, I get it. We're not going to work ourselves into heaven, right? And I say, right. They go, okay, then I'm not going to work. Because all I want to do is get my golden ticket to heaven, and then I'm done. I'm going to park and not lift a finger. (laughs) Okay. Now, you really got to wonder about the motivation of somebody like that. Because if they've been forgiven of their sins. You know, Jesus told a parable And he said, hey, there's this one guy that got forgiven a little bit of money. And this one guy that got forgiven a whole lot of money. Who's going to be more grateful? And his audience said, well, the guy that got forgiven a whole lot of money. And that is right. Guys, I've seen this played out. Uh, I was on a trip to uh, Pontiac, Michigan, where there was, there's a really good work up there. Where they take in people who um, who are recovering from drugs who have been in a life of prostitution, all these different bad things where they've, they've made just a wreck of their lives. Well, they go to this place, and they clean them up, and they tell them the gospel, and they have worship services. Now, I went into a worship service there, and it was one of the most genuinely passionate services I've ever, ever been in, maybe the most passionate service I've ever been in. Let me ask you why. If you think about it for a second, you'll realize that these folks were really aware of how much they had been forgiven. And they were so passionately grateful for that. Now, unfortunately, some of us who have been reared in church, guys, it's not that we've been forgiven little. I have been been forgiven so much. I can't even begin to explain to you how much I've been forgiven. But sometimes we who have been reared in the church are unfamiliar with it. We don't realize, guys, how much we've been forgiven. And so we love less than they do. That is a shame. If we could realize how much we've been forgiven, our our worship would be entirely passionate. I mean, you couldn't hold us back. If you had gone into that room where those people were who were in a life of prostitution and in a life of drugs and their lives were destroyed before they found Christ, if you had gone in there and told them, well, I think it's a little more politically correct to sit still and praise God just on the inside, (laughs) 
They would have laughed at you. They would have said, I can't contain the joy that I have. And so, guys, we need to be passionate because we understand. See, that's where it starts. It starts with understanding. It starts with studying the Word so that we can then realize the truth and the truth can motivate us to passionately worship. Another reason that we need to study is to prepare yourself to teach other people. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go to seminary before you can teach Sunday school, and I'm certainly not saying that you need seminary training in order to share the gospel. I'm saying that you need to be able to study before you teach in order to make sure that you know what you're talking about and that you aren't simply teaching the traditions of man. I saw a Facebook post the other day that was explicitly teaching incorrect doctrine. And since I saw this post, it was, it was obviously somebody that I know. And I wondered if the person thought about what they're posting or just saw something kind of Christian-y and, and reposted it. Unfortunately, teaching in the church is sometimes just Christian-y stuff that people hear and then repeat without ever checking the original document, the Bible, to see if it's actually accurate and true. We need to do better than that, and we can do better than that, but it will take a little bit of effort and a little bit of study on our part. You may think that you're not called to teach, so you don't need to study. I think that I can show you that you are called to teach if you're a Christian. So who is called to teach? Christian parents are called to teach. Look with me at Ephesians 6.4. It says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Now, it doesn't say that mothers are to do this, but I think any clear thinking would, uh, would, would say that this is a group effort, but the ultimate responsibility lies on the father. And, you know, that's something that the world really needs to hear these days, right, is that the ultimate responsibility does lie with the father. So we who are in the church need to be examples of that. Older women are called to teach. Now, although it's difficult to tell because our ladies look so young, and wonderful. Our largest demographic in this church is older ladies. You ladies, you are called to teach. Paul wrote in Titus 2, 3 through 5, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. Older ladies, you hear that? You are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. I have daughters that I'm bringing up in this church, and they're pretty much grown, but I want them to see and learn from godly women who are older than they are. Thank God their mother is one of those, but other women as well. And listen, if I haven't covered you yet, all Christians are called to teach. If you've been a Christian for a week, Should we ask you to teach Sunday school or fill in preaching next time I'm out? No, we shouldn't. But you can do what you are called to do. You should be trying to replicate yourself. What I mean by this is if you've been a Christian for a week, then you probably know a lot of people who are not believers because they're the people that you used to hang out with, right? And you can go to them and tell them how that they can be saved. Witnessing has been compared to one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's a great comparison, guys. If you found that bread of life, you can go and tell somebody else where to find it. What does the Great Commission tell us to do? 
Matthew 28, 19 and 20 says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Look at that. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So if the Great Commission applies to you, and I believe that it does if you're a Christian, then you are called by God to teach in some capacity, whether you've been a Christian for seven days or 70 years. If you're called to teach, then you need to study the Word of God so that you will teach correctly. Another way in which all Christians are called to teach, well, they're called to study and then teach, is found in Paul's letter to the Colossians in chapter 3 and verse 16. It says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So guys, I, I spend time with people in the church. Uh, sometimes Chris and I will get together. And when Chris and I get together, um, I've, I'm older than he is, barely. And uh, so I'm a little older than he is. Uh, I've been a Christian a few more years than he has. And I have had the benefits of studying the word and that kind of thing. But we don't get together and I go, all right, grasshopper, let me impart wisdom to you. No, we hang out and I hope that I impart wisdom to him. And I'm certain that he imparts wisdom to me, right? We teach each other, we admonish one another, and we stir each other up to more and more godliness. In many people's minds, there's way too big a gap between clergy and laity in the church. I think that it's wise and appropriate to have someone who has studied and been educated specifically in the Word to teach the Word of God to the people. And, uh, you know, that's a benefit to the church. But we sometimes get off track thinking that the clergy are supposed to be, are really supposed to know the Word and the rest of us don't really need to. That is not right. I hope that if that is part of your thinking, that I've given you something substantially to think about something to chew on and to realize that hey guys it's my responsibility before God to study the word of God so that I can live in front of him the way that he has called me to live so what do we do now here's one of these moments where I put you on the spot and you have to make a choice now you don't have to make one publicly but faced with what we talked about today you this morning have to make a choice. Will you prioritize the study of Scripture? I've given you reasons from the Bible to prioritize the study of Scripture. Now you get to go home and make a decision. Now you can say, well, I'm going to go home and eat lunch and take a nap, and by the time I wake up, I won't have to think about it anymore because I will have forgotten everything you said. Okay, that is a choice, right? It is a choice to decide whether or not you're going to take the time and effort to prioritize the study of Scripture. And guys, I know you're busy. I'm busy too. My kids talk about how busy they are, and they wish they could go back to when they're five. <laughs> you can't. It's busy from the time you're about 18 until you die, right? you got stuff to do. But you can prioritize putting the Word of God and the study of the Word of God into your day. You may have to reprioritize your life in order to make time. That's okay. Choose whether you're willing to do it or not. To the Christian, reprioritizing to make time available for the study of Scripture makes sense because we want to please God more 
than we want anything else. We want to prioritize the kingdom of God. But if you're here and you aren't a follower of Christ, then this probably sounds like a burden to you, right? You're going, man, I don't want to have to do that. I don't want this burdensome regulation on me. If you feel that way, uh, I'm not criticizing. I'm just warning you to look at your spiritual condition. Because we who really are Christians should desire to serve our Lord the best we can. And if reading and studying His Word seems burdensome to you, let me, let me urge you to see that as a, as a problem in your spiritual life that you need to deal with. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. I just want you to realize there's a symptom and see what is causing that. You know, Jesus told Nicodemus that you can't even see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. So guys, if you're here and you're thinking, man, I just want to go to heaven. I just want to go to heaven because going to hell is crazy, right? You'd have to be literally insane to think there is a heaven and think there's a hell and say, I'm going to pick hell, right? You'd have to be crazy. Everybody can do that. What the ones who are really saved, though, you don't just want to avoid hell. You want God. You don't want what God will give you. You want a relationship with God. And so let me tell you, if you're here today and you're going, you know, I, you're describing me because I don't so much want that relationship. I just want the benefits of that relationship. Then let me urge you, when we get up and sing together, come down here and talk to me about that. Guys, I'm not going to judge you and make you feel bad. I'm just going to try to help you diagnose whether or not you're in the kingdom. You know, the Bible tells us to do that. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. We're going to sing together. So let's stand.